right. Thank you. K4 through first grade, you're invited. They are on their way. I don't even. Parents, they'll be up on the third floor. They're already gone. All right. <laughs> You'll please take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Mark begins his gospel by answering three critical questions about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come? And today we're looking at how did Jesus love? Now, as we go through this sermon, you're probably going to think, David just preached on this, didn't he? Because I know you remember all of my sermons, right? You remember each one I preached. You could repeat them back to me, right? Yeah. Back in the fall, see, even I don't necessarily remember that all the time. So I'm preparing and studying the sermon, and I'm like, I think I talked about this already. So I'll look back. Yeah, back in the fall, I preached a series on, on what did Jesus do? You know, you know, we often focus on what Jesus said. What did Jesus do? And it was out of Luke. And so Luke covers all of these stories together in the same order that Mark does. So, yes, I have preached on these stories from Luke's perspective. And we focused on who did Jesus love? Who did Jesus invite into God's kingdom? Which is what Ben was talking about in the children's sermon. So from Mark's perspective, I thought, well, let's not look at who Jesus loved, but how Jesus loved. How did Jesus love those people that he invited into fellowship with God? Now, the first thing I want to say, and I know I've talked about this before as well, but love is a very overused but misunderstood word in our culture, isn't it? And in fact, love has become a political issue. And people love to use the word love to advocate for an abandonment of absolute truth, of any kind of accountability or morality. The line of reasoning says, you know, Jesus is all love. And Jesus told us to love people and not to judge people. And so whatever their lifestyle, whatever their orientation, whatever they feel is right for them, we should affirm and accommodate and celebrate it because that is love. And love is love. And that's what Jesus would do, right? That's the reasoning of our culture today. Well, it is true that God is love. That's true. And it is true that Jesus demonstrated God's love in his interactions with people and especially in what he did on Calvary's cross. That's true. And yes, it's true, Jesus calls us to love people and not to condemn them. We really do want to be like Jesus and not like the Pharisees, right? Right? Yeah. I hope we can be on that same page. But, but, people often fail to understand what God's love is. It's easy to talk about love. It's easy to talk about God's love and Jesus' love. But, but how does God's love work? What exactly is God's love? What does it do? Again, to our secular progressive culture, love means fully accepting. Not just fully accepting the person, fully accepting their beliefs, their desires, their lifestyle choices. To love someone, they say, is to celebrate everything about them and never ask them to change a thing. There's no calling people to admit or turn from their sin. There's no holding people accountable to an absolute standard in God's Word. In fact, those things are labeled as hate speech. 
So to help us wrap our minds around what God's love really means and how we are to show God's love to other people, I want us to look at these three stories from early in Jesus' ministry to help us discover that, to help us discover that Jesus' love comes to us first and foremost through a touch of compassion. We see a touch of compassion here in chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone... Uh, see, see that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. A touch of compassion. Like so many people in, in these crowds that were following Jesus, this leprous man's mind, his imagination, his heart were captivated by Jesus' healing ministry. For the first time in his life, this leper felt like there was hope. Because you see, lepers in the first century were among the most hopeless people on the planet. Leprosy in the Bible describes a variety of skin diseases. Not just what we would think of as leprosy today, but they were all dreaded. They were all highly contagious. They would all render you ritually unclean, meaning you basically were isolated from social and religious life because of your disease. Lepers were the outcasts among the outcasts. They had to live on the outskirts of society. And if they dared come into, you know, kind of milling about towards the cities, they'd have to wear a bell around their neck like a, like a cow. And if they came within 30 feet of someone, they had to yell out, unclean, unclean. Social distancing was a way of life for them. And it was a lot more than six feet. These people came to be identified by their disease in a terrible, soul-crushing way. So this man had no delusions about how dire his situation was, how unworthy he was of Jesus' attention, nor how desperately he needed what he knew only Jesus could give him. He recognized Jesus' power to heal. He said, you can make me clean, but he also recognized Jesus' authority to heal. If you are willing. If you are willing, you can make me clean. He believes in Jesus, but he doesn't impose on Jesus' authority. Rather, he submits to it. There's, there's no sense of entitlement in this man. And listen, if anybody had the right to play the victim card, it was this man. He truly was a victim, but, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't make any demands of Jesus. He only requests humbly that Jesus would show him mercy. Compare this to the arrogance of our culture today. Few people are willing to humbly acknowledge their need, the direness of their situation, their desperate need for Jesus. We we don't like owning up to our spiritual uncleanness, do we? 
Instead, people today tend to want to affirm the very things that cut them off from fellowship with God. Isaiah 5.20 so aptly describes where we are as a country today. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, we must confess our sin, sickness, the the spiritual uncleanness that separates us from God. And we must confess that there's not a thing I can do to cure myself. No more than this leper could do anything to cure himself of leprosy. Like him, we need Jesus. And we must come to Jesus believing that he is who he says he is and that he can do what only he can do. And we humbly ask him for his grace to transform us. So how did Jesus respond to this man's faith, to his humble cry? Well, Jesus showed love by healing the man. But I want you to notice why and how Jesus chose to heal this man. First, why did he heal him? Well, the NIV and my NIV, it says that Jesus was filled with compassion. Now, you may have a translation that says something very different. It may even say that he was indignant. Angry, furious, filled with compassion, indignant, angry, and furious. Don't those kind of seem like opposite emotions? What's the deal? Well, the Greek word there actually is most often translated as angry or furious. So that probably is a better translation. So how do we reconcile these two seemingly contradictory emotions? How can Jesus be filled with anger and compassion? How can a loving God send people to hell, right? That's what people ask today. How can God be a God of mercy and wrath? A God who loves and a God who judges. We treat these as mutually exclusive characteristics. But see, the thing is, they're actually complementary. They're actually two sides of the same coin. Jesus is indignant, but not at the man or his request. He's indignant at the cause of this man's social isolation. Jesus is angry at sin and at the the consequences of sin in this broken world, such as this man's incurable disease that has left him physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, socially cut off from life. That's what Jesus is indignant about. When you love someone, are you not naturally angry at anything that causes them harm? If you love someone who is diagnosed with cancer and you watch them battle through that cancer, how do you feel about cancer? You hate it, don't you? You're angry. You're indignant at it. Every parent works against harm to their children. They work to protect their child from harm because you love them. That is the actual compassionate thing, is to hate, to be indignant at anything that causes harm to someone you love. That's how Jesus can be angry at leprosy, yet filled with compassion for the leper. What a novel idea. Wait a minute. You can actually love sinners, but hate sin? Who knew? Who knew? We can feel anger at the brokenness in our world. Indignant toward racism. We can speak out against sexual sin and weep over those who genuinely struggle with gender identity issues and with misplaced sexual desires. We feel that way because we love people who are made in God's image but are cut off from God and His will by sin. 
We love people. As Christians, we love people. We genuinely want God's best for them. Those two things are not in opposition to each other. To love the sinner but hate the sin. In fact, they both require one another. You can't do one without the other and call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Because we love sin, but the sinners, we have to hate sin. And the reason we hate sin is because we love sinners. They go hand in hand. But see, one of our problems, and I think where we are as a culture today, it, partly the blame falls on us as the church. Because one of our problems is as Christians, we tended to just stop with pointing out how awful the man's leprosy is. We just kind of left it at that. We're quick to point out people's problems. Calling sin, sin, and rightly so, but then we keep those people at arm's length. What kind of a doctor diagnoses your problem, but then doesn't offer a treatment? Oh well, so sorry, Have have a good life. That'd be a terrible doctor. Can you imagine if Jesus had told this man, oh, stop, stop right there, stop where you are. Don't come any closer. You're a leper, aren't you? Yeah? Let me hear you say it. I'm a leper. Let me hear you say it. What if Jesus rebuked this man? Where's your bell? I didn't hear you yell out unclean as you approached us. Yet how often are we guilty of doing the same thing with people in their sin sickness? Look, it's not enough just to point out people's sin. It's not enough just to feel bad for people. Our compassion should move us to love them as fellow bearers of God's image and then move us to do something about it. That's what Jesus does. He feels something about this man's need. He genuinely cares, but then he does something radical and unexpected. He identifies himself with this man in his uncleanness. By touching him. Jesus didn't have to touch this man's diseased skin to heal him. Jesus often heals from a distance with a word. Why would he touch this unclean man and render himself ritually unclean? You see, that's not what happened. Instead, something amazing happened. Something that's never happened before. Instead of this man's uncleanness infecting Jesus... Jesus' cleanness disinfected him. That was amazing. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange whereby Jesus took our sinful leprosy upon himself that we might be made clean and whole and new and righteous before God. And what a model for us to follow. When we come across people who are sick with sin, and maybe they're outcasts. Maybe they're the kinds of people you normally would never associate with because they're not like you, they believe differently than you, they live differently than you, they look differently than you. But you know God loves them. You know Jesus died for them. So what should you do? Two things. First, be angry at sin. Be angry at the sin in our world that cuts people off from God and from each other. But secondly, have compassion on the people. Love them by reaching out to them. Touch them. Get to know them. Be their friend. Listen to their stories. Listen, if you are walking close with Jesus, 
If you've got the Holy Spirit in your heart, you've got God's Word committed in your heart, and you're seeking a relationship with someone for the purpose of leading them to Christ, you don't have to worry about their beliefs or their reputation or their sinful lifestyle infecting you. Don't worry about that. Rather, let the love and truth, the holiness and grace of God work through you to point them to Jesus Christ, the only one who can forgive them and change them from the inside out. A touch of compassion. Secondly, we see Jesus' love comes with a word of forgiveness. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that He had come home. So many gathered, there was no room left, not even outside the door, and He preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to Him a paralytic, carried by four of them, Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Here's a man who literally is brought to Jesus by his friends. Reminds us this story that sometimes it takes patience and hard work and ingenuity and creativity to bring our friends to Jesus. Uh, Before we look at what Jesus did, I want to focus for just a minute on these four friends. They weren't going to let anyone or anything stop them from bringing their friend to Jesus. In fact, it was their faith that Jesus recognized as he forgave and healed this man. We all have friends and family, co-workers, classmates, neighbors that we need to bring to Jesus. Here at First Baptist, we say, who's your one? Well, these four people had the same one. That's okay. You can share your one with others. Sometimes it takes two, three, or four of us to bring someone to Jesus. Who's your one? What is stopping you from bringing them to Jesus? From inviting them to church? For having a gospel conversation with them? Is whatever that obstacle is anything compared to the obstacles that these people faced? Are you willing like they are to do whatever it takes to overcome those obstacles and bring your friend to Jesus? They dug through the roof of someone else's house. It wasn't even their own. They literally valued people over property and propriety. See, part of our problem is we get all hung up on the niceties, right? Maybe part of that's being Southerners, you know. And I can remember as a kid hearing people say, don't talk about religion or politics. Well, the politics thing's gone out the door. That's all we seem to talk about anymore, right? Especially on Facebook. So why not talk about religion? Why not talk about our faith? Why not stop getting... Why not... We need to stop worrying about offending people. I don't want to offend somebody. I don't want to be a Jesus freak. And so we say nothing. 
Can you imagine? This probably was Peter's house. Can you imagine Peter standing there watching this? Hey, what, what are you doing? Stop that! That's my roof! But Jesus didn't interrupt them. Jesus stood there and he watched and he waited and he wondered at the boldness of their faith and the burden that they had for their friend. Now, I love it when the Pharisees are all like, you know, you know what is this guy doing? I love Jesus' question. He says, which is easier? <laughs> because I look at that and I'm like, well, neither is easy, Jesus. I mean, <laughs> forgiving sins, telling a paralyzed man to walk. But those, in fact, those things are impossible unless you're Jesus. Amen? And notice he performs the most amazing miracle first. The one that's the very reason he came. He forgives the man of his sin and cleanses his heart. And then as a sign of that forgiveness, he performs the minor miracle of making a paralyzed man walk. See, the most amazing thing Jesus can ever do for you is to forgive you of your sins. To no longer hold them against you. To erase your failures. To change your heart and give you a new identity. This man had become identified with his limitation and weakness. He was a lame man. His paralysis was his identity. Again, how like our culture is that? Today, our culture wants us to identify ourselves by things that really don't matter. The color of our skin, our gender, our income, our education level. And the latest thing is to identify yourself by your victimization. Critical race theory, intersectionality, these, these pagan worldviews are all about elevating, celebrating, and using to your advantage your oppression. The more oppressed you are, the better. But Jesus came to overcome that. He came to erase all of those kinds of distinctions. As Paul would write, such were some of you, but no more, because you've been changed. You are now in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, in Christ, there is no male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. The only identity that matters is that you are in Jesus Christ by God's grace through your faith. That's the only identity that matters. And so Jesus looked beyond this man's physical flaws and spiritual failures. He forgave the latter and healed the former. And He gave him a new identity. And Jesus can do the same for anyone, for whosoever will come to Him in faith and repentance. That's how Jesus loves us. He reaches out to us with compassion and touches us, identifies with us so He can make us more like Him. He speaks a word of forgiveness that redefines who we are, that gives us a new sense of worth and value and enables us to do what we could never do on our own. Walk with God. And the third thing that Jesus' love does is call us to community. We see a call to community in this last passage. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to Him and He began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors... They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Now, Levi was a tax collector for Rome. He was a Jewish man working for their Roman oppressors. He was a collaborator. His fellow Jews saw him as a traitor. In the rabbinic writings of the day, tax collectors were lumped in with murderers and robbers, just to show you what they thought of Levi. And the way the system was set up, Levi, who would later be called Matthew, uh, he basically had no oversight from the Roman government. He could charge whatever he wanted in taxes so long as Rome got their cut. They didn't care how much Matthew kept. Now, Capernaum, where this is taking place, remember Capernaum, that's where Peter, Andrew, James, and John are from, had a huge fishing industry. And so in the story, see, Jesus is walking along the lake, preaching and teaching, and then he comes by Levi. So he's got a tax-collecting booth set up here near the Sea of Galilee, which means that he's collecting what was called the fish tax. So follow me here. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, what was their profession? Fishermen. Where did they fish? Sea of Galilee, city of Capernaum. Matthew's collecting the fish tax. Peter, Andrew, James, and John had a very long and unpleasant history with Matthew, didn't they? They knew Matthew all too well. I can just imagine them out there on the fishing boat in the mornings just complaining and grumbling, probably insulting that Levi. I'll tell you what, you know, how much of this fish is he going to have to take from us? They didn't like him. They didn't want to have anything to do with Levi. So imagine their reaction as Jesus approaches Levi. And maybe they're thinking, oh, yeah, Jesus is going to, he's going to tell him. And instead Jesus says, Levi, son of Alphaeus, follow me. I can just see Peter pulling Jesus aside. Master, don't you know who this man is? Don't you see what he does for a living? We don't want somebody like that following you. What will people say? I mean, that's as socially taboo as touching a leper. Wait a minute. Been there, done that. Yet notice that Matthew responded exactly the same way that Peter, Andrew, James, and John did. He got up, left everything behind, and followed Jesus. In fact, I would say that Matthew's faith in Jesus, his commitment to Jesus, was more radical than theirs because Peter, Andrew, James, and John could and even would go back to fishing whenever they wanted to. But if you work for Rome and you get up one day and you leave behind your duties and you abandon it, you think that job's going to be available for you again? You're lucky they didn't come after you and cut your head off. This wasn't a job that Matthew could ever return to again. Obviously, there was a miraculous change in Matthew's heart. He not only left behind a profession, but a way of living, an attitude, and a lifestyle of dishonesty and selfish gain. And the first thing Matthew did was invite his friends to meet Jesus. Can you imagine if we were like Matthew and we started having little dinner parties to invite people to hear about Jesus? Table fellowship in the ancient Near East, just like it is there today, meant full acceptance. So for Jesus and his disciples to dine with Matthew and his socially, culturally outcast crew of tax collectors and sinners was a way to say, I fully accept you as equals and as friends. That's what Jesus was saying. What if you went to those others disregarded and broke bread with them, showed them Jesus, accepted them as friends without reservation? What if we became the talk of the town like Jesus did for eating with sinners? 
Of course, in doing that, Jesus once again raised the ire of the Pharisees. Jesus keeps doing inappropriate things. Have you noticed that? He touches unclean lepers. He has the audacity to forgive a man of his sin. That's blasphemy. He invites a traitorous tax collector to be a disciple, and then he eats dinner with him and other tax collectors and sinners in a house that is bought and furnished with blood money. Just think about it. The food that Peter, Andrew, James, and John are eating was probably bought with money that they gave to Matthew in taxes. This is what Jesus does. Jesus' love is a radical love. It doesn't concern itself with what's nice. It doesn't worry about what's appropriate or socially acceptable. Jesus' compassion requires a healing touch. What is touching a leper compared with the almighty, infinite, holy creator God stepping into his creation and taking on human flesh and blood? Jesus became a human like us to identify with us and to reveal God to us and to die for us. So touching a leper compared to that is nothing. Jesus' love requires touch. Jesus' love requires a word of forgiveness for those who come to Him in faith because that's why Jesus came. He came to live a sinless life and die the perfect sacrificial death on Calvary's tree for you and me that we could be forgiven of our sins and made right before God. That's why Jesus came. He came so that we who are spiritually paralyzed could walk with Him. And we see that Jesus' radical love includes a call to a radical community of grace. Matthew was an outcast, hated by his fellow Jews, but for the first time in Matthew's adult life, he felt welcomed, accepted. He was no longer on the outside, he was on the inside. And in response, he goes and he brings others from the outside, inside to his home to meet Jesus. Now, Mark only ever calls him Levi, but we know from the other gospel accounts he was later called Matthew. He's sort of like Simon Peter, or Saul, who became Paul, or John Mark. He had two names. He was Levi, Matthew. And I like to think that Jesus gave him the name Matthew. Just like he gave Peter or Simon the name Peter. Why do I think that? Because Matthew means gift of God. I guarantee you Matthew never felt in his life like he was God's gift. He probably felt more like a curse. I'm not talking about any Matthews in this room today. But he, for the first time in his life, came to realize he was a gift of God. That's what Jesus does. Jesus takes those people that are thrown out as worthless and he brings them into fellowship with God and says, you are God's gift. Now, does that mean that Matthew's sin didn't matter? No. Jesus is not ignoring the life of sin that Matthew chose to live. He doesn't dispute the fact when the Pharisees say, why does he eat with sinners? Jesus doesn't correct them. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, whoa, don't you call them sinners. No. He acknowledges that these people are sinners. They are known breakers of God's law. Jesus doesn't deny that, but he wants to include them into the kingdom of God. Jesus wholeheartedly accepts the sinners, but he never accepts their sins. Just as he called Peter and Matthew to get up, leave everything behind and follow him. So he calls us to die, to sin and self, to leave it all behind, to take up our cross and to follow him. That's the part people don't like today. 
Oh, people love talking about Jesus's love and oh, I'm going to follow Jesus. But they don't like to talk about the things they have to leave behind to acknowledge their sin, to acknowledge the identity the world gives them that says this defines you. This is what you are all about, that that has to be left behind to follow him. Jesus freely welcomes and loves sinners, recognizing that is what they are. But he always calls them to repent and leave behind their life of sin. Listen, every single one of us are born into this world sinners, lost, spiritually dead, darkened in our mind, at war with our Creator. It is only in Christ Jesus that we are declared righteous saints. Without Christ, we would all be destined to an eternity in hell. Every one of us. I'm no better than anyone. You're no better than anyone that's out there in the world today. Can I get an amen? Amen. But Jesus sends us out to invite them. Those who are far from God. Those who are broken in their sin. He calls us to invite them into God's kingdom. Recognizing the image of the Creator within them. Seeing them as someone that Jesus loved, for whom Jesus died. And someone that He sends us to make disciples of. To baptize them in His name. And to teach them to obey His ways. Listen guys, this is the heart of the gospel. And this is what's being lost in our culture today. The heart of the gospel is that we are undeserving, wretched sinners. But that God loves us anyway. And He came to save us from our wretchedness. When we come to Jesus and experience His grace, He forgives us, He cleanses us, He gives us a new identity, and He sends us out to help other people experience the same thing. As followers of Jesus and members of His household, as people whose places at His table are secure, we need to follow Jesus' example. We need to go into the world around us and we need to touch people with compassion. Recognize their brokenness. Recognize their sin, but not in a way that condemns them, not in a way that lords it over them, but in a way that comes alongside of them and loves them as people made in the image of God. To extend to them the word of God's forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. To let them know that they too can experience newness of life and be given a new identity in Christ. And then to call them to join a radical community of faith who will love them as they are but help them walk in newness of life to become more and more like Jesus. I hope and pray, believers, fellow Christians, that you'll keep your eyes and ears open for opportunities to do that, to touch people with compassion, to extend to them through gospel conversations a word of forgiveness and to invite them into a loving community of faith. And this morning... If you know in your heart that you are separated from God, if you know that your life does not live up to what God wants it to be, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose from the dead. And He wants to help you leave behind your sin, your shame, your guilt, your failures. He wants to give you a fresh start and a new identity and to walk in fellowship with God. Would you do that today? Let's stand and pray together. Father.